This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast reducing the complexity of pop culture phenomena to whatever can fit into dialogue bubbles and thought balloons. Today we're talking about writing comics with ace scribe Fred Van Lente, who's written for Marvel, his own evil twin comics, et al. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, speaking in dialogue penned by Stan Lee with exclamation points at the end of every sentence. Sometimes more than one. <laughs> I'm Erica Spires, New Yorker at large. And I'm Brian Hurt, communicating in thought bubbles like Snoopy and occasionally in scratch marks like Woodstock. Welcome, Fred. Thanks, guys, for having me. Thanks for being here. Fred, for those people who uh, are like, that name sounds familiar, where might I have heard his words but not his voice? Well, I've subjected the comic book reading public to my words since about, I would say, 2003, something around that general area. I've written The Amazing Spider-Man, Iron Man, Many of the Mans. <laughs> G.I. Joe, Conan the Barbarian, Archer and Armstrong. I wrote a book called Cowboys and Aliens they made into a movie with Daniel Craig and Harrison Ford. I write a lot of nonfiction also, often with someone whose name I'm sure will come up quite a bit today, who's Ryan Dunlavey. Uh, we did, we've done Action Philosophers and the Comic Book History of Comics. We're currently working on the Comic Book History of Animation. Our middle grade series, Action Presidents, is pretty much anywhere you can find books. We're in Walmart. It's always exciting to be in Walmart as an intellectual. So that means your stuff is in the produce aisle if you're at Walmart, because you could just be anywhere in Walmart because you're wherever someone put you back down. We are between like Diary of a Wimpy Kid and I don't know, one of those other big YA series, Raina Telgemeier's books or something. Nathaniel Hale's Hazardous Tales is another great YA comics history series. So we're, we're, we're racked next to him. He's a great dude. Uh, and I've written some novels and starting to get on the audio podcast train. I wrote a play with my wife about Jack Kirby that'll be on the Broadway podcast network in audio drama form, probably first quarter 2021. Fantastic. Yeah, so the thing that you're promoting at this minute is the first issue of the comic book History of Animation. Which is out December 2nd. I mean, that seems pretty exceptional, you and Ryan, that you've done so much nonfiction. I saw that you, without Ryan, also did comic book history of basketball. Is that right? Yeah, they have a whole series. That, that was the last one of that series, I think. That's a 10-speed, which is an imprint of Random House. Yeah, the basketball one was super fun. I did that with a guy named Joe Cooper, Dave Swartz on, on Colors. I could see why that would get by default. I don't know if Action Philosophers was aimed necessarily when it came out at teens, certainly not middle schoolers. But given the popularity of the form, given Diary of the Wimpy Kid, given things like that, I could see how, from a marketing perspective, you could kind of get channeled into it being perceived as aimed more toward kids. It seems like a, a specifically American thing. We, we had a manga episode recently, and we're talking about how manga is so ubiquitous in Japan. It doesn't have any sort of stigma. And so that it would be entirely normal to have like instructional manuals for adults to be in manga form. But for some reason, that's strange and exceptional here. Sure. I mean, that's rapidly changing. I mean, partly it's because graphic novels are the biggest growing segment or have been the biggest growing segment in books for many years. And not just manga. It used to be manga was the real powerhouse, but now creators from beyond Japan have sort of gotten into that market here. But somebody like Will Eisner, creator of the Spirit, was doing comics instructional manuals for the U.S. Army during World War II. You know, the Army embraced the comics instruction 
stuff pretty early on and and Eisner really promoted that and they they did studies that showed and studies at places like University of Oklahoma have also shown that because our brains work visually the retention rate of information in a comic is much higher than just a straight up prose text so I'm what you might call a comic supremacist um <laughs> I'm very proud of it and it's the best kind of supremacist it's the, the hill I'm going to die on it's the only good kind of supremacist that's right <laughs> I would imagine you have to be pretty careful, though, if you're doing comics for educational purposes, right? Obviously, the words are important. But in that case, what kind of image is sticking with the kid to help them understand that? And when you came up with your ideas to start working in this field and doing action presidents and action right. philosophers and things like that, was that something that came together with your artist? Or like, did you pick the artist based on what kind of art you wanted to come across in those? Ryan Dunlavy and I went to college together. We went to Syracuse University and we were both in the comics club where we'd watch anime and bootleg Rim and Stimpy. I'm now dating myself on VHS. <laughs> and we moved out to here to New York together, but we didn't really work together until we were both sort of working independently in comics and trying to break in. And there's this great, or there, when there's not COVID, there's this great indie comic show down in DC called the Small Press Expo. And they used to do like an anthology every year. And the anthology one year that you tried to get into was, the theme was biography. So I was reading Nietzsche as one does. In college, when of course. When you're 20. No, no, this is this is I'm way too pretentious to actually read it during college <laughs> where I could put it to some practical use. But no, I was reading it on my own for fun. And so I just hit on this idea of like, oh, wouldn't it be funny like to do a, a little mini bio of Nietzsche, but as if this came with your Nietzsche action figure, like He-Man and the Masses Universe used to have these little comic books that were packaged in with them. And so hence the name Action Philosophers, right? Because this was an action figure comic. And they rejected us instantly from the anthology we never got in. But Ryan is, God bless him, way more stubborn than even I am. As I get later in life, I marvel by that fact. But he, he sort of submitted it everywhere. And every publisher rejected us until one of them said, hey, why don't you apply for the Zurich grant, which is a self-publishing grant that Peter Laird co-created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles used to put on back when self-publishing meant doing things on paper. And we got the grant and we just started doing it. And it was just this insane, demented comic where Plato was drawn like a Mexican wrestler because he was, in fact, in his early life, an actual Olympic wrestler. We had the all sex issue was our second issue. So it was very explicitly like not for kids. Mm -hmm. I think the all sex, the all sex issue was Thomas Jefferson, St. Augustine and Ayn Rand because they all have like weird sex things going on in their lives, uh, <laughs> particularly Thomas Jefferson. And like to our total shock, like people bought it and liked it and it was a modest hit. And we just did it for 10 issues, I think, nine issues. And then we did another series that was History of Comics, and that was very successful. And we just kind of steamrolled it. I mean, the Action Presidents thing, actually, believe it or not, was supposed to be for adults. But I think our agent misunderstood what I was trying to tell him. So he sold the book to Harper Kids. And we're like, all right, we'll roll with that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> There are other things to say about Thomas Jefferson, apparently. That's right. Well, we want to do like, like, I want to do like demented factoids about like, was President Taylor poisoned? You know, was James Buchanan our first gay president? You know, the, the answers are maybe and probably <laughs> respectively there. They were like, no, do Washington, Lincoln. We want biographies, you know. And it's been fun and we had a really good time. And unfortunately, the series premiered in the middle of a global pandemic. <laughs> so... I don't know how it's doing, but I don't know. know. I would imagine like even if it takes it a minute to get out there because of the pandemic, I think it's going to be really helpful because I am an auntie of four young boys and it's so hard doing online school when you're not used to that format at all. And I think like with all the text he has to read every day online, I think right. it'd be super helpful if he could digest it in a way that he's much more inclined to enjoy. Kid so. gang 
parents, kids listening to my voice, they're on Amazon, Walmart, probably bookstores <laughs> right probably. now. <laughs> If anybody goes to this, right? You have the Action Activists one, the most recent one downloadable for free. That's a pretty elaborate. I saw there's like a whole committee of people at the end that were. Right. I assume, you know, the typical one of these, you're just doing your own research. In this case, was this a, you know, here are the talking points we want to get across and then work with those? Yeah, they were big fans of action presidents at the DOE here in New York City. And so that's your that's your tax dollars at work, New York. You're welcome. <laughs> and they, they came to us like, well, we want to do comics. And they're guys who do the social studies curriculum at DOE are huge comics guys, and uh, particularly Brian Carlin. They brought us on, and they were like, we want to do a comic that talks about the history of protest in New York City and how the government works and how protesting works and how you run for city council. And I was like, that's it? And you have 20 pages. Like, okay. Do you want to cure cancer, too? Just checking, like, how? <laughs> What's the story here? So, yeah, so we did that. That was super fun, and we were doing quite a lot of events for that right it got distributed. Every middle schooler in the New York City public school system got that comic, I think, the week before lockdown. So we just we just made it in. Indiana Jones grabbed his hat right before the wall slammed down. I've got to admit, Fred, I was always leery of any comic that sought to educate me. Right. Whether it was, you know, on the back of a cereal box or Sprocket Man telling me to wear my helmet. Like, I always <laughs> went in there assuming that this is, like, made by some square adult who is just trying to <laughs> slip vegetables into my pancakes or something. That's right. I mean, you can tell just by looking at me how hip I am. Like, I'm so not square. I try to push back against the whole education thing just because other than, okay, Action Activist is different because it was literally paid for by the Department of Education. That's absolutely an educational comic. But I mean, I don't know. I like reading like essays in the New Yorker and I like reading history books. And I consider what Ryan and I do comics essays more than anything else and like biography and stuff. So I resist the education label mostly just because it's terrible marketing. I don't mean to shock you guys, but a huge segment of the population has no interest in learning anything and get very hostile when you attempt to say that maybe they don't know everything that they need to know <laughs> from now until death. I try to use the term like nonfiction or humorous nonfiction, but with middling success. The portmanteau edutainment doesn't do much for me. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm, <laughs> I'm not. I tried that and it just was a lead balloon. It didn't go anywhere. I can't remember what the exact fact was. At some point on the Partially Examined Life, my philosophy podcast, we covered one of the figures you covered. And I, as part of my prep, read your, your, and I mentioned one of the facts from it and got pushback, like. Meaning it was incorrect or. Yes. Something in common with the two projects is that we're both not presenting ourselves as formal education. This is just, we're outsiders talking about this stuff in an irreverent way. And so it seems like you can get away with like, we're just trying to get you interested in this stuff and give you, you know, something to smile about and, and to think about and, you know, go read this stuff directly. If you want, you know, go pick up a real book. <laughs> History is, is not well served by being just a series of dates you're supposed to memorize or like battles or like, you know, my eighth grade history teacher, though he's a terrific teacher, American history teacher. He gives the syllabus, like mimeograph syllabus every year with like little keywords and we're supposed to write under everything like, oh, the Missouri Compromise, you know, and like you write down whatever the Missouri Compromise was. I'm from below that. I know all about it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Take history of comics, for example, like doing the geek stuff you know, is shockingly more popular than <laughs> any actual legitimate history of philosophy. <laughs> Who would have thought? But the interesting thing about that project and why that was so sort of rewarding, I think why it did well is that people get obsessed with particularly in geek culture, like, like I love Batman or I love horror comics or I love underground comics. I love R. Crumb, right? And I love all these very, or Vertigo. Or I love these very specific comics things. And what's cool, what I try to do, and this is what we're trying to do with the animation book as well, 
is show how all these disparate elements combine. You know, all these tributaries flow into the same river, and you show how all these things influenced each other, about how EC Comics influenced Alan Moore and how Watchmen influenced the superhero movies and all that kind of stuff. So it's very gratifying to show people how we're all kind of interconnected, get people out of their silos. The problem is, is a lot of people really very vigorously resist leaving the comfort of their own silo. Well, there's something about your presentation in the history of comic stuff that when I read that, I didn't even register that it was by you at the time. Maybe it was before I ran into your other material, but it actually got me reading like, okay, I'm going to go to the library, get a big Little Nemo thing. And the actual experience of reading those things was much less pleasurable than just like getting this high level with the art. I mean, I love the fact that it's like, okay, if we're going to draw Walt Disney, we'll draw him with mouse ears on him and, you know, sort of doing that throughout to make the character representative. Actually, I didn't really catch in the scripts is that all Ryan's decision as to how to show, are we going to make this person look anything like the actual person or are we going to show them as their famous character? That was a very conscious decision and sort of picking up to something Erica said earlier, like we just decided for the animation book, which is the book we're doing right now, is we were just like, fuck it, everybody's animals. Like we just like, we weren't even bothering to try to draw people how they actually look. We just made them all look like Hayao Miyazaki looks like Totoro and, and Disney looks like Mickey Mouse and with a mustache. Yeah. With a mustache. That's right. <laughs> well, partly that was so we could show Mickey Mouse and not get sued because we could be like, no, it's fair use. Look, we changed his design. It's not Mickey Mouse. It's Walt Mouse, you know, so far no one sued us for doing any of this stuff, but there's always a first time. In like Windsor McKay and the creator of Little Nemo in History of Animation is Gertie is a dinosaur because of his most famous anime movie is called Gertie the Dinosaur. And so I guess to a certain extent, it's like, again, sort of going back to that history in terms of dates, it's kind of a meaningless factoid. What's most interesting about history is to show how one thing led to another and how, how these different traditions kind of flow into each other, you know, and it's challenging because God writes bad drama as as the saying goes, because History isn't just a linear kind of, you know, Bible paragraph of Isu begets so-and-so who begets so-and-so and just this chain of cause and effect. Things are always happening multiple times. I love that. If we can get that into kids' heads earlier rather than yeah. later. I think I was always taught to... My father tried to make me learn concepts. He was like, memorization doesn't matter. You can always have something in front of you to remind you, but you need to understand why. But it never really got into my head until college, and I was taking a music history course, and an American history course at the same time. And the dates were actually converging. And I was like, wait, this led to this, which led to this, you know? So that's really cool to be able to like put that together in some sort of comic form. Yeah. This is the war that Wagner was ignoring at the time. Exactly. I and mean, then you're like, oh my God, I get it. That's right. Well, speaking of your scripts, you have a few of them on your website so people can really see the process. And I had just never seen anything quite like this. My familiarity was with the movie American Splendor, where Harvey Picar is shown. Uh, Paul Giamatti plays Harvey Picar, and he wants to write comics, but he has no artistic skill. I'm from Cleveland, like Harvey is. So he's a very he's a very big deal where I'm from. Okay, so your, your brother then. And so he would draw with stick figures, and he would actually plot it out that way. And this, and what you have reads much more like a, almost like a movie script where you're even calling shots. Do you do anything visually when you do this? Do you sketch at all? Can we look forward to your comic books? No, I gave up at 12. Sadly, the world will never see Eagle Man, my creation from the fifth grade. Not really. I mean, I try to be very kind of sparse with my descriptions. Right now I'm doing a comic where the fine Italian gentlemen who are drawing it, just their English is not the greatest. And so I have to really like overly explain stuff. And I did actually have to do kind of an elaborate drawing of a setting for a giant action sequence with superheroes and zombies. 
because he just was not getting it. So I don't do a lot of that stuff. I mean, I do a lot of reference, like particularly when Ryan and I are doing our history stuff. At this point, I've been doing it for so long, it's kind of second nature, like drawing it would just actually just slow me down. <laughs> it does feel a bit like with those script breakdowns that you're not just the writer, but you're also a dramaturg and you're also a director because you're actually showing them references of like, I want you to draw something kind of like this. This is the research that I've done for this. So it's not completely necessarily written in your words how to do it. It's like, use this picture as inspiration as well. Do you find that to be more helpful? He's wearing a different jacket. This seems ominous somehow. (laughs) That was like a line in your script that he's not wearing the, (laughs) the jacket he was wearing at the end of the last issue. How that was exactly supposed to translate into, you know, you're just kind of giving... I actually don't even know which script you're (laughs) referencing, but uh, I'm sure that jacket was... It was a master's jacket we revealed that he was was (laughs) golfing, and it was, aha, you couldn't have committed this crime because you were were on NBC playing in the master's tournament. I feel like I should have noticed that earlier. Yeah, I mean, you know, part of it is just the the simple fact that if you don't have a good artist, you're kind of screwed, (laughs) so... Putting too much effort into, I've been doing a lot of mentoring for my buddy's school he runs called Comics Experience, which is a great sort of online academy. And it's fascinating to me because there's no set comics format. It's amazing to see how everyone screws up the same stuff in a completely different way. Like when there's no standard, like everyone's just like, I'm just going to wing it, you know. And one guy, you know, comedy writer, he's doing sort of the satirical science fiction thing, but his descriptions literally went on for like two pages and were so like dense. And it's like, you cannot blizzard people with information like that because what's going to happen is, is that artist is not only going to not draw this incredibly detailed thing you've laid out for them. He's going to miss important stuff you do need him to draw because you've just given him this giant grocery list of stuff. Like he was putting in like this, actually, this is a different person was actually putting like how proportional like the various figures should be in the page. And, and it was just like dial it back, dude. But it's like, how would they know if I don't tell them? And it's like, well, the, it's called a collaboration. You need to have like a, <laughs> it's a two way street, right? You need a conversation. You can't just be like, you're not an architect, right? You're not making out these detailed plans. In the movies, this comes to script writers who start putting in real stuff that is for the director, right? The smash cut to this and the high shot of this. And it's like, dude, just stay in your lane. And yeah, well, and a lot of people tell, tell you never to do that. You know, if you find a happy screenwriter, you've met a director, you know, <laughs> someone who's become a director in TV, you become a producer to protect your words. And in movies, you become a director. Now a word from our sponsor, better help. The holiday season is here, and let's face it, even though it's supposed to be a time full of love and cheer, it can be a hard time for folks, especially when they're away from their families and friends. If you've ever considered working with a therapist, now is the perfect time to connect and start living a happier life. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist of your own. You can connect with your therapist safely in the comfort of your own home, online, or with phone sessions. And it doesn't matter where you are in the world. You can work with a licensed professional counselor. And what's even better, you can begin communicating with a therapist in under 24 hours. Enjoy confidential, convenient, and affordable help with BetterHelp. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener of Pretty Much Pop, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash pretty. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash pretty. Now let's go back to the show. Well, it seems like when you're communicating with the artist that there's this third thing that you're referring to, you're, you're saying you're referencing things, you know, whether we're writing pictures of historical philosophers. So, hey, go Google what the person actually looked like. That's your starting point. I will give you some, there's some external thing 
One of the examples I pointed my co-hosts to was your Marvel Zombies Return. So the Spider-Man, it's a very distinct, basically a Spider-Man who's been zombified, travels from an alternate dimension, not only to a fresh, unzombified universe, but back to a particular 1960s Spider-Man issue. So you had that to refer to, and it has this wonderful, I will spoil the last (laughs) important image, you know, a very famous image of Spider-Man walking away from he's thrown his Spider-Man suit in the garbage. Well, in this case, the zombie Spider-Man has actually ripped his own Peter Parker skin off and that is hanging over the garbage in the same way. So the fact that like, you know, you guys probably had a a shared love of that era, that issue, and you could point at that and conceptually, the artist obviously had so much fun. The Sinister Six is going to show up and the zombie Spider-Man is going to just murder them in literal elaborate ways. Yeah, my favorite thing about that issue is that instead of webs, when he does the little hand motion, like his veins shoot out of his wrist. It's just so gory and horrible. That art was by the great Nick DeGrada, who's best known for doing an image series with Jonathan Hickman called East of West. And he's just a genius. Great dude. Erica, did I get you to read that one? No, but I read two others. I grabbed my husband's Marvel Unlimited. There you go. Password. Because he's on that all the time. And I was like, I need to read a couple comics. (laughs) So he was helping me out this morning. I don't still have those pulled up. Which ones did I read? Was it the Avengers Initiative or the... There was one of the the last ones about the kid who gets zombified and he's ready to take his own life. And then they... Oh, right. Yeah, that was Marvel Zombies 5. So funny. Yeah, that one turned out really well. That was a good one. I laughed out loud three times, at least. It was so self-referential, too, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, people really like zombies. I'm known a lot for this nonfiction stuff, but my wallet knows me from my zombie comics. <laughs> my bank account knows me from my zombie comics. Uh, and I'm doing a couple right now. But yeah, it's, it's just fun to sort of do these crazy super zombie gore. Extra. I think I've been a huge horror fan. I actually, I'm more of a fan of horror than I actually like really doing it myself. And it is sort of weird, like the zombies, you're like, well, how many variations can you do of this? And it turns out you can do a lot. (laughs) You know, it's like chess. It's like there's, you know, 188 million moves or something. I mean, is it horror if it's comedy horror? I guess I don't know how if there are limits to how horrified you're going to get if if it's that funny. Yeah, I mean, you know, I just like the genre and I like monsters and I've liked monsters like the Universal Monsters since I was a kid. And I have a particular sense of humor that I think Marvel saw. And that's why they tapped me to do Marvel Zombies when Robert the Walking Dead Kirkman left. And I was never as successful as him (laughs) in the zombie genre. But people like zombies. It pays the rent. I don't know enough about the full-on zombie series, but was Howard the Duck always a part of this, or did you just have a particular fascination with Howard the Duck? I love Howard the Duck, but the editor actually had me put him in there. I can't remember what the logic was. I think it's because like we had a, we were at dimension hopping, and Howard the Duck is famously from Duck World, which is a parallel Earth where everybody's ducks and or animals, depending on which version of Howard the Duck you're looking at. But no, I love Howard the Duck. The only thing that sucks about Howard the Duck is that they still make him wear pants because there is a legal dispute between Disney and Marvel about Howard being too close to Donald Duck. And so part of the sort of legal settlement was that they had to put Howard in pants. And he looks dumb in pants. I like his original 70s version where he was pantsless. Ducks look dumb in pants. I'm sorry. (laughs) Hats, fine. Sailor suits, fine. Blazers, fine. 
no pants. So you're pointing out something that is wonderful about comics. We very much, with the rise of comic book movies, kind of equate those two things. But since comics are so much cheaper to produce, you can just do all this wacky, like the world, the Marvel world of the comics or whatever is going to be so much more vast with so much more goofy things. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there will be a Squirrel Girl movie. Certainly for Howard the Duck to get made as a movie, it took all of George Lucas's heft. And that was such a stain on cinematic history that... Well, though he showed up in Guardians of the Galaxy, right? I mean, Howard has canonically appeared in the MCU, so it's not like it's totally a crazy idea. Would there be a Marvel Zombies film? I mean... That I can pretty much guarantee that's not going to happen. Like, when I got Marvel Zombies 3, they were like, you can't use Wolverine, you can't use Spider-Man, you can't use Captain America because the suits at the time, I think that was just pre-Disney sale, actually, so they were more self-conscious about this than... Ironically, being bought by Disney sort of took a lot of that that kind of pressure off. They were like, you can't use any of the characters anyone's ever heard of. And so I was like, there's this great Jack Kirby here called Machine Man. And so I just had Machine Man go kill zombies and it was hugely successful. He's like a lethal inspector gadget. But somehow by Marvel Zombies Return, you were allowed to not only just use zombie Spider-Man, but in that world that he's visiting, the original Spider-Man shows up and you make a comment on how easy it would be for the Sandman to just kill Spider-Man. If he would just let loose, just go in his mouth mouth and expand. It's very easy. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Inexplicably for that one series, they let us use the main characters and that's sort of a direct Robert Kirkman stuff. That, But then when we went to the series that Erica read, which I think was the next one was five, was they were like, nope, can't use them anymore. And I was like, all right, make up your mind, guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. But now I think they brought that series back and I think now they are actually back to having the main characters. So you can't rule out the Marvel Zombies film. That's what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I can pretty definitively rule out this film. I think that's that's pretty much, you know. But if, if someone with a lot of juice, I mean, if Taika Waititi says, I really want to make this, don't you think? Or the Russo brothers? He, I do not. All right. <laughs> definitely for, not. For our listeners, definitely that not. was a head shaking. Um, definitely definitely <laughs> not. Definitely not. You know, the way Disney, in particular the Marvel runs thing, is, is that there's a reason you've never seen Tom Cruise in a Marvel movie. It's because he's too big. Because Marvel wants people they can, you know, there's a reason Steven Spielberg has never directed a Marvel movie, nor probably will he, because Marvel's very skilled at keeping control. Feige, I think specifically, Kevin Feige, is very skilled at keeping, letting people get big, but not getting bigger than Marvel, right? Marvel's always the bit, you know, so so in other words, like, if they were like, you know, I think that you'd need to have like three tanking like Avengers movies before they were like, fuck it, they're zombies, you know? <laughs> Screw it, because that's sort of just this weird. And, you know, at the time, like the suits had zero interest in doing Marvel zombies, but it just made so much money. They couldn't not do it, you know, in publishing. And partly it's because of the variant covers. You have 700, you know, Arthur Sudan makes a nice living making paintings that are like it's Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man, but he's a zombie, you know. Like these kind of homages. So I guess my point, Brian, is a lot of the appeal to the Marvel zombie stuff is very specifically how the comics publishing industry works. And I don't know if you could necessarily translate that into the movies without completely number one. Like it's one thing to have like Lego versions of the adventures, but like something to sort of tell Tom Holland, okay, in this scene, you're eating Marissa Tomei's face off. Does that sound like something you want to do, Tom? <laughs> Marissa, how what do you think? Let's go for it. I kind of want to, but <laughs> <laughs> something we're seeing now with the Marvel movies is that we're really rooting for the costumes more than the people inside them. If I can spoil a movie that came out years ago, you can kill the Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man and still have Iron Man go on, right? And the actor who played Black Panther passed away, but Black Panther will live on with someone else in it. Kind of like Jerry Seinfeld talking about 
you're rooting for laundry, right? It's not the team. It's not the players. It's the, the clothes that they're wearing. And that really gives it a, a lot of legs beyond, again, possibly some of these actors becoming too big. I did want to ask you a little bit about Cowboys and Aliens, just in terms of what creative contributions you were able to make during the creation of that movie and whether some of the departures from what you created were ones that you were championing, that you lived with, that you were less excited about. I mean, not to point fingers at anything that you weren't happy with, but I'm just curious about the the process maybe more generally. I was not involved with the movie at all. That was sort of a weird job where I got my comic script got the movie made and then the comics. So I wrote the comic script the day before 2001 and the movie came in 2011. So that's how long that movie took. And that's pretty typical, actually, from sort of conception to rolling it out. And by that point, they had completely rewritten my comic scripts. So the comic that came out really bore very little resemblance to the script I wrote. The weird thing about it was that by the time the comic and the movie came out, I was already known for being a Marvel guy and I sort of had action philosophers that had already come out. And so by this bizarre sort of twist of history, I was the most well-known person attached to the comic, even though very little of what I did for the comic was actually in the comic, much less the movie, which has seven writers, but seven credited writers, by the way, which is always the sign of a quality (laughs) film. I got a special thanks to at the very end. That was my credit. When I first got the job in 2001, they were like, we want to do, I was like, Cowboy Sounds. Oh, that's funny. Like, well, no, it can't be funny. It's, this is a serious film about aliens eating cowboys and then cowboys fighting them. And I'm like, you're out of your mind. (laughs) Like, like literally the first thing they wanted, like Xenomorph, H.R. Geiger aliens versus 19th century cowboys. And I'm like, that's not a fair fight. (laughs) Like, like, what's the purpose of that? And I sort of took it more in like a Galaxy Quest type direction because I love that movie. And I just thought it was a good sort of tonal or like Men in Black or something like that, which the same company had also shepherd from comics to movies. But for some reason, by the time the film came out and you know, John Favreau directed it and Steven Spielberg, I think, produced it and he helped cut it and all these great people were involved in it. They just once again got into their head that it had to be taken seriously. I want to ask you about this play that you wrote. And also selfishly ask you when it's going to be a musical and when you will need Jack Kirby's daughter and or wife. (laughs) You know the term dramaturg, so I can tell you're the theater person of this trio. I I am. I am. Uh, (laughs) That's why I'm living in New York. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm interested in this, why the idea of a play came to be. Because, like, as we all know, they don't typically make a lot of money unless something really takes off. I mean, we had a very famous musical fun home about Alison Bechtel, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? And it looks like it's still being produced or it was being produced recently. And I'm sure the pandemic has changed a bit of that. But That's a project that kind of predates the, the comic book history of comics. I was really fast. I was sort of working on a biography with Jack Kirby and still trying to break in. This is pre-Cowboys and Aliens script, in fact. That's how long ago this was. I was dating a playwright, Crystal Skillman, at the time, who's now my wife. And uh, I was sort of like, uh, you write plays, I could write a play. So I, tr- I, d- I did a draft of it as a play. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great. But then many years later, this theater here in Brooklyn called The Brick was doing a comic book theater festival. And Crystal was like, hey, remember that Jack Kirby play you wrote a decade ago? And so I dusted it off and I was like, well, you're more experienced with this than I am. Why don't you take a look? And she was like, well, you should maybe do this and change this and change that. And I said, congratulations, Crystal. You're now my co-writer. So I put her name on it. It was a nice little hit in Williamsburg. And we got a nice New York Times review and it's been done a few other places. 
we raised the money to produce it through a Kickstarter. And one of the Kickstarter rewards was a audio recording of the original cast. And thanks to the, the pandemic lockdown, interest in audio dramas and podcasts has kind of shot through the roof. And we realized that someone approached us to do an audio version of King Kirby. And we're like, well, wait a minute. We have an audio recording. It was recorded in Midtown Comics, believe it or not, in a comics shop for Midtown Comics podcast. And we had the recordings, and so now we're doing it for the Broadway Podcast Network as a four-episode miniseries. Uh, it's very exciting. Like I said, it's the original cast. Steven Rattazzi plays Kirby. Steve is probably best known in, among geekdom in, in, in that he played Dr. Orpheus on The Venture Brothers. Uh, he's also a great Broadway actor who was indecent in, in a lot of big, big Broadway shows. He's a, he's a terrific dude. But yeah, that should hopefully, we just had our, our big marketing meeting with the network yesterday. So that should come out early in 2021. So that's still rolling, man. So that that means once more people hear about it, they're going to want to produce it. And that's right. And you can play Lisa. We'll add Lisa Kirby, who is Kirby's daughter. And I have your email. So that's right. <laughs> I haven't looked at that one. How much humor is in that? And is that sort of sacrilegious if you make it too funny? Exactly enough humor. Uh, I mean, there's some humor. I'm kind of a wise ass. I don't know if you've noticed. So it's it's just going to kind of creep in there. It's absolutely a drama. You know, it's about a guy whose life work gets stolen from him. So it's not a knee slapping sex force. <laughs> it's not Porky's <laughs> is what I'm saying. Maybe Porky's three. Might be Porky's five. Kirby's revenge. <laughs> Kirby's revenge. But no, that's been very exciting. And we were just working on episode three this morning, actually, before I came on with you guys. Are you reading any of it? Are you going to be a reader? Like, no, it's just all still going to be original cast. So I actually got cut myself out of it because I read the scene directions in the original podcast. And this is supposed to be like a drama. Like, so there's no like between you and me and the listeners, it's the recorded reading of a play. You know what I mean? But we're adding sound effects and music. And, and speaking of music, you mentioned musicals, Erica. It's being edited and the, we're going to have original music composed by the great Bobby Cronin, who Crystal works with on her show, Marion Max. And he's done a bunch of musicals. And so we actually have a musical person sound designing and writing music for the show. That's great. So, yeah. So Crystal does a lot I'm of musicals. excited to hear this. Yeah. Musicals and comics were, it's like two American art forms under one roof. <laughs> it's amazing. Even better that you guys uh, seem to work well together, sounds yeah. like. Well, she's Italian, so she yells a lot, but I kind of just try to, <laughs> okay, honey, sure. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. That no, we work really well. <laughs> well, there's something about. I'm just trying to draw a connection here between you build in when you're doing something like Marvel Zombies or X-Men Noir or something like that. You're playing in an existing sandbox. You're, you're adding to a world or even when you're doing a biography of some historical figure or Jack Kirby or something, you're filling out this picture. But I think the line between a loving tribute or dramatic elaboration and a parody seems very thin. Maybe parody is just not the word because you're never with your humor. You're not undermining the whole thing. You're not saying Spider-Man is a load of crap in the first place and I'm making fun of it. <laughs> You're using humor just like in a musical that we're using song to elaborate, dramatize, make more entertaining, sort of rejoice in the whatever the thing is. And that is a legitimate and probably should be the only way that these sort of world building things happen, right? If you're just, oh, we need to tell another prequel story of, you know, something to fill in the history of, I'm picturing how bad Lord of the Rings, this upcoming series might be. <laughs> Can you say a little about sort of how this connection between the world building and the use of humor, really? 
world building is extremely important, but I think what's more important is the emotional life of the characters and having an emotional realism to whatever is going on with the people, whether they are regular Joes and Janes or superheroes or hobbits or, you know, robots or what, you know, whatever the nature of the character is. And it's a very fine line because some people with the humor, it does kind of knock them out of it and they can't take it seriously. Like my parents are super funny because they hate comedy. Like it's really strange. Like they need things to be either like, I think it's maybe because they're like the sitcom generations. They need things to either be three camera laugh track or this is it's Shakespeare. You know what I mean? Like they're very like their interpretation of comedy is that it's dumb, right? That's just like, like, like I love stand up comedy. Uh, I wrote my first novels about stand up comics, but they'd like walk in the room and they'd be like, and you'd see somebody with a mic telling jokes and he'd be like, they'd be like, this is dumb. Like immediately I'm putting this in the category of dumb. And I think it's not idiot proof. I do sort of get why the Cowboys and Aliens people really didn't want to do like a more kind of lighthearted thing. And that's why their immediate like fallback was to like horror, you know, like horror is like porn. Like it's very like in your face. It's like, it's very hard to fuck up unless you really try. And then a- another part of it is that specifically with Cowboys and Aliens, and this is where a lot of these things come from, is that, you know, you may recall that Will Smith followed up Men in Black with Wild Wild West, which was another kind of like tongue-in-cheek sort of thing that bombed horribly. So partly why it took them a decade to get Cowboys and Aliens made, because everybody would be like, oh, it's like Wild Wild West. And they'd be like, no, no, it's not. It's its own thing, you know. So yeah, you get a lot of sort of weird comparisons. But I mean, like, that's what something like The Simpsons, for example. I mean, can you find a better example of world building, humor, and yet also heart in than something like The Simpsons, or at least seasons one through 10, as opposed to season 70 or whatever it is in there. Right well, you know, it's been a while now, so maybe it's time for a film remake of Cowboys and Aliens. Of Cowboys and Aliens. <laughs> maybe it can be done the way that the author intended. That's right. Only if they, my comic can come out the way I intended. Then I'll, then I'll, I'll green, I will use my magic god powers to green light the, the, the <laughs> new movie version. Hey, if drunk history can get made into a TV series, then clearly sure. like action presidents, even action philosophers perhaps could be made into an anthology show. Yeah. I mean, I would say that my original conception of action presidents was probably much closer to something like drunk history. Then it got sold to 12-year-olds, so I had to kind of like... But you'd think they'd be even more into something like drunk history. Oh, they would love it. As long as you can make sure their parents aren't reading what they're reading. So if you could snap your fingers and make one of your properties into a movie or a TV show, what would it be? What's the one, if you had all the power? That's a good question. I did a book for Dark Horse called Weird Detective that's about this Cthuloid monster who's posing on Earth as a police detective. Just so everyone knows, Cthuloid is Cthulhu with a mustache, so he doesn't get sued. All right, go on. (laughs) Well, a lot of stuff is in public domain, so nice try, copyright (laughs) lawyers. He's trying to sort of track down renegade monsters while not people finding out that he's actually a monster himself. But the gag of the series is that he's really terrible at pretending to be human. So people ask why he's so strange. His explanation is, I'm from Canada. (laughs) I mean, that's sort of a good, another sort of example of like a tongue-in-cheek kind of horror thing. So I often think of, I guess, do you feel like, apart from the studio pressures and all the collaboration that necessarily has to go into putting something on screen, I think a lot of people think of comics as kind of being like storyboards, as it's just low-budget films. Like, how do you see the difference between what you would be writing, you know, the restrictions that have to go into what's going to fit into how many panels and whatever, you know, the format restrictions you'd have for comics versus 
for the screen? I'm expecting no, but tell me more of what you think. Brian is saying, like, wouldn't that be great? Because probably because it would get you more of an audience if it, if something you wrote for a comic form got out there on the screen. But would it actually be better to have it in that format, leave less to the imagination? They once asked Stephen King, like, how do you feel about all these bad movies ruining your books? And he sort of turned to this bookshelf behind him and said, what do you mean? They're not ruined. They're just there. They're right there. It's two different things, really. I mean, like, the book kind of has to stand on its own and the movie has to stand on its own. So I guess I'm sort of so mired at coming back to my comic supremacy. I'm so mired in comics. I just don't even really see, like a good movie is a good movie and a good comic is a good comic. I guess I, and I also almost always prefer the book, whether it's prose or comics to the movie or the adaptation. So, I mean, I want Hollywood's money. Like, don't get me wrong. <laughs> you know, absolutely. I want my stuff made into movies and TV. If I'm not writing it, I don't give a shit. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like if it's not my problem, like being sort of a professional creative person is so stressful unto itself. You just need to be able to like compartmentalize, like I'm going to worry about the things that are my problem and I will, you will worry about all the things that are your problem and just, you just kind of have to shut it. Otherwise, you know, kind of shut it off, you know, and it's tough. I've had a bunch of stuff optioned. There's some stuff under option very recently, but everyone in Hollywood is like, we want to package it. I would have to really play hardball somebody to get myself on the writing staff of any of these projects because that's just not how the business is run. It's very much like you stay over there in the corner, comics man, and I, the agent, usually it's because agencies have all these different people they want to package, you know, producers and directors and writers to get all together and get their clients work as opposed to give you money because that then makes them money. So I don't know if that's really the answer you're looking for, but I'm just from a practical business standpoint, it's a challenge. Like I would have to be like, I will not sell you this comic unless I'm writing the script. And the truth is you don't have complete creative control anyway. So if anything is going to make you unhappy, then maybe everything is going to make you unhappy. And you're almost just better off walking away and saying, well, yeah, I'll cash your check and know that your thing is your thing and my thing is here. And if Stephen King can't point to his bookshelf, he can always point to his mattress, which is stuffed full of $1,000 bills. Say, I sure sleep comfortably on this thing. He's got a fitted sheet just over this rectangle of $1,000 bills. Yeah, well, and it didn't hurt his brand to have all these films, even if they're terrible, getting his name out there. And it would be the same thing, you know, that all there are all these Kirkman properties or, you know, so now Kirkman is a thing. And I'm sure, fingers crossed, Van Lente, you know, will be known far and wide. Kirkman, in fact, was the single biggest donor to the King Carby Kickstarter, come to think of it, back in the day, next to my dad. Oh, (laughs) that's so sweet. Indeed, indeed. How have you been faring during the pandemic? Has it actually been good for you to be stuck in your home so that you're writing more or have there been fewer things to inspire you? I miss travel. I mean, travel is a huge inspiration for me. So being not being able to run around the world is uncool. But I mean, my life honestly has not changed really one iota since I work from home and I have since about 2006, I think. Many objects in my house smell like Purell now because Crystal sort of obsessively wipes it all down with with hand sanitizer. That's sort of the main thing. Um, She's been stuck here. And obviously that's been really hard for theater and because she's used to going to rehearsal and going to performances and stuff. So I think her life has changed pretty significantly. I mean, the first couple of months, it was like, it was actually a nice little pause. I was like, oh, okay. Well, now everyone's kind of stuck at home too. So there's less of pressure of the rat race and stuff. And then in the late summer, it started to really suck. Then the election happened, and now we're in the middle of whatever the hell this is that's going on. Is there more of a hunger for more properties to come out right now? It seems to me that, at least in my household, there are a lot more comics being read. (laughs) Well, that's always good. It was really slow in the first half, but it's really picked up actually pretty significantly in the second half. So I don't know why that is or if it has anything to do with the pandemic at all, or it's just that's just somehow sometimes the way things go, you know. 
but the comics direct market is kind of rolling on and this zombie thing for dynamite and i'm doing comic history of animation is coming out in three weeks we should wrap up here with another plug for comic book history of animation i mean was it just that you had already done comic book history of comics and like had you always had this abiding interest in animation as well or is this just chasing a new thing that was interesting like how much research was necessary for this or did you kind of already know in at least rough outline most of this stuff was this something you've always been interested in it's something Ryan has already always been interested in. So, I mean, he's been putting up with me since for 20 years. So I was like, all right, I'll throw you a bone. We'll do a project <laughs> you want to do. I mean, obviously it was, you know, to do a follow-up to comic book history of comics, which has definitely been our most successful book. It's been a very sort of interesting topic to tackle, partly because I suppose that this should have occurred to me before going into it, but technology has played such a huge role in filmmaking and animation, you know, like, like the invention of the Xerox machine was a huge boon to animation. And so we're sitting here trying to explain how Xeroxing works. I mean, I can explain to my mother how the fax machine works. It's hard, but it is sort of a fascinating story because I think it's movies and not comics. So much of the story of American comics has been like this desperate struggle for validation. You know, like people were talking about the beginning of our talk that as opposed to places like Japan, comics in America really struggled to get out from under the you're trash for morons kind of stigma. While animation, ironically, was even more sort of overtly for kids, but was also in its own way, particularly like the Looney Tunes shorts and the other Mickey Mouse shorts were very much intended for all ages, but skewed adult a lot of times and depended quite often on a lot of racist and like super racist. So like so many cartoons you'll never see again because they just have an unfortunate made character or something of that nature. It's it's or there's a lot of there's a ridiculous amount of blackface jokes in like Tom and Jerry and, and Warner Brothers and stuff. So dealing with that and the song of the South and how Walt Disney tried to get that off the ground and, and all the various controversies that sort of swirled around that is, has made it a pretty interesting topic. The portrayal of the Japanese in the World War II. Sure. Yeah, I would imagine wasn't super sensitive. Although the Japanese did it to us in, in their first anime was called uh, Divine Sea Warriors, in which adorable chibi animals bayonet very stereotyped rubbery Caucasians quite graphically and it's bananas. You can see it on YouTube and I highly recommend it. It's completely insane. What is the cartoon that still gives me nightmares? It was some kind of like African jungle thing, but it was still images with human live action lips moving. Right. <laughs> yeah, like Nanook of the North and stuff that like that. It seems like that that will be restricted for multiple reasons. And the the question is like yeah, so we had to like leave some stuff off obviously for space that this this sort of thing where we'd be like is that technically animation? And we we didn't really do stop motion animation, but as you know, we point out in the first chapter or the first issue of the animation book, I mean technically all filmmaking is animation since it's all single images shown rapidly to trick your eye into thinking that it's moving, even digital video. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. This was great. How do I sound? Do I sound good? This is the first time I tried out this mic. You sound great. Awesome. And, and you had awesome, fun content, too. So good on you. Even more important. Thank well, you. Well, and our editor is going to put you through sort of a Donald Duck filter through the whole thing. <laughs> awesome. I, so can no he, pants, apparently. Can he uh, give me one of those things I can actually like put in my mouth and like talk like that all the time? <laughs> like in my like when I go to the store? There should be something like that for people doing ransoms over the phone. You know, that kind of anonymous voices on TV. That's right. <laughs> All right. So long, listeners. Thanks, listeners. Thank you, Fred. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys.
Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.